there's no greater joy in life than becoming a mom or dad. And just when I got the hang of it, my own mom and dad started needing help too. If you're raising kids and helping aging parents, welcome aboard. You're one of us in the sandwich generation. This is the Sandwich Generation with Chris Godfrey. Chris was an offensive lineman with the Super Bowl 21 champion New York Giants. Today, he is an estate planning and elder law attorney in South Bend, helping families make the most of their home field advantage. Hello, I'm Chris Godfrey and welcome to the Sandwich Generation. We have a very special guest today, an old buddy from seminary who himself was a member of the Sandwich Generation for many years and his name is Father Eric Cruz. And before we get into the specifics of his own caring for his mother, I would like to take a little time establishing his bona fides as a busy person already taking care of a quite large spiritual family. Father Eric was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of New York in 2003 and is currently the Bronx Regional Director for Catholic Charities and the Chairman of the Hispanic Clergy Advisory Council and Diocesan Director of Pastoral Migratory Immigrant Ministry. And at the end of those long days he puts in, he returns to help at the St. Philip Neri Parish in the Bronx, New York. Welcome to our show, Father Eric. Well, thank you, Chris. It's so good to hear your voice. God bless you, and thank you for the opportunity and the invitation. Yeah, and I'm glad that we're able to like, just snag you for a few moments in your busy day. You're actually in your car parked outside of the busy New York traffic in between assignments. And so thank you for the short time that we'll be together here today. And in case some of our listeners' ears perked up when I said that we're old friends from the seminary, let me be clear. Father Eric was <laughs> the only one enrolled there, and you graduated magna cum laude. That was a pretty rigorous program, I understand. It has its moments, four years in the major seminary, two years in the minor seminary, the pre-theology program, and in between, sandwiched in between, was a year, a spirituality year, somewhat cloistered year in the hills of Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania at Mary Immaculate Seminary. Oh, very nice. And we also had a friend and spiritual advisor, in a sense, in the late John Cardinal O'Connor. Although in my case, he didn't suggest that I become a priest, seeing I was already married with four kids at the time. But he was a big supporter of life athletes, as you were at the other parishes that you had pastored over the years. But just when we began to get established and the show up and running, 9-11 happened. And how did that 9-11 affect your ministry there in the city? You're just getting underway yourself. Getting through the initial shock. Because quite, I remember it occurred, we were in moral theology class at the seminary. The late, God rest his soul, Monsignor Bill Smith was our professor, and he walked in at the start of class and mentioned an accident, as it was understood at the time, of a plane striking the World Trade Center. So we sort of got through it, and all of a sudden, class was suspended. TVs were in the dining hall, the refectory. And everyone was called to order and gathered there to watch the news and, and it all unfold. Quite honestly, my attention went to what are we going to do? We as a seminary community, mm. I was serving as master of ceremonies for the community. And I'm thinking, okay, are, are we going to the chapel? Are we going to have mass? Are we going to have a rosary? Are we going to break out uh, into groups and head down somewhere in proximity to what's happening? So all of that is running through my mind and just almost badgering the rector and other administrators, priest administrators there. What are we going to do? So, but I think everyone was sort of in that stage. How do we do whatever it is we want? So we watched a little bit, and tears were immediately streaming down folks' face. 
I remember one of my seminary brothers in tears just seeing what was happening. And we just knew it, it was evil that was striking us at this time. As I'm watching and I'm absorbing what's happening, my thoughts also turn to my oldest sister who was working, worked for the transit authority at that subway station beneath the World Trade Center. Oh my. She was there years ago when the garage bomb occurred, the, oh. the first attempted attack. Yeah. So she's not in good physical health to start with, but she was working and I'm thinking, oh my, my goodness. And, and started to think of my college classmate and his wife, college sweethearts, uh, who worked, she military working at the Pentagon. And all of a sudden the list was going, my brother who was on his way to the Pentagon and all of these, the list of folks I knew somehow immediate relationships, friends and relatives. And the rest of the day was in prayer with the community, mm-hmm. watching, waiting. I immediately called my mom, God rest her soul, because she's certainly worried and spending the day hoping and just waiting that I could speak to any one of the peoples I had, I have referenced when they get home that they're well, how are they going to get home? We, you know, all of the questions and the mysteries at the time that, that, that were just, just assailing us, we were just bombarded by this. And, and your mind is racing, your soul is, is trying to keep up in hope and in that fine line between despair and hope and what, as the situation and that evening unraveled off the record. <laughs> if that's at all possible, later on, we were on complete lockdown. We were not allowed to leave the property of the seminary. And I, and I, one vivid memory, we were in praying the rosary and this extended lengthy roar, very loud of thunder that literally, Chris, shook the seminary structure and building. Wow. And it was those fighter jets so low racing around the skies, all around the city and the general area, the counties of New York, mm-hmm. just roaring over and just literally, we were shaking. They were shaking the pews we were seated. The building was shaking. You could hear the stained glass rattling. It was just very ominous, very striking, almost terrifying noise that was around us as a constant reminder in prayer that thunder was happening around us and what was occurring in a, a distance, the other end of the city, because the seminary is outside of the city. Uh, on a good day, about an hour ride to the uh, World Trade Center area. Mm-hmm. That was vivid, very striking, very stark memory. I will never forget that feeling and that rattling. And I, I have the goosebumps as I'm even retelling it 20 years later. You know, nothing happens in New York in a little way. And here we are 20 <laughs> years later, COVID hits. And I know that it hit New York in a special way. We all saw that giant ship pull into the harbor, expecting the worst. And I know that that, again, it threw your schedule, already a very busy schedule there in the melting pot of the country with all kinds of different people and different disparate duties and all the rest. COVID hits. How did that affect you this time around? It wasn't striking, right? Because this is a pandemic or a plague. So you begin out in a mist like everyone in the country in the world. It's a mystery. What's going to happen? How are we going to respond in the unknown? How, how strong, how dangerous and deadly is this? Dealing with the stresses immediately at work in the office, an office full of social workers and case managers dedicated to people in need, the most vulnerable. This is on top of that. People already unemployed, now further unemployed and perhaps losing and risking their benefits, any subsidies they would receive. Schools are closed. 
So we, I, we, we start thinking, at least I did, about the ripple effect of this illness and then whatever comes, the mystery, hoping to be malleable enough and prepared for the next step. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? But yet you have to do that. You have to temper it with the reality. Where my office is situated, we have the food hub. From that hub, the pantries are sustained throughout the Archdiocese of New York. For those who don't know, it's 10 counties large. From the northernmost point to the southern tip, it's about four and a half hour drive. So it's a rather large diocese. And it's only part of the city. It's three counties of the city, seven counties north. The other parts of the city is the Brooklyn Diocese, just to make a distinction. So and from that hub, so we're already serving the hungry throughout the 10 counties. Now that's multiplied. And thanks be to God to dedicated staff, volunteers that step up. We asked. We didn't try to finagle. They knew the reality. Mm-hmm. We provided all the people, all the personal protection, all of the protocol. We just created it as we went along. That's what you had to do. We have no history with this yeah. or this circumstance, right? So we just went along and the food program, the hub, the pantry also at the office in the South Bronx never closed its doors. We continued to serve and to give you an idea of scope. In a regular year, let's using the pandemic calendar, if you will, as a marker, a reference, from March 1st to October 1st, when lockdowns began, we served 1 million people. Wow. From October to January, February, really, we served another million, wow. half the time. God bless you. And we're over, we're over 3 million now. Donors stepping up, volunteers being there, the city stepping up to work with us for the poor. They asked us to extend the, the, those services to Brooklyn and Queens in that diocese. So it was really a constant, the malleability, a constant, continuous conversion of what we do. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, doing the best we can, please God, in prayer, let me tell you, in prayer and with him, and being there with a staff that is now working remote then and still now in case management, and many other services of just that food-related program. It continues, and it's going to be a, a while before we return to any sense of whatever normal was a year and a half ago. I hope our listeners keep you in prayer in these coming months. You guys are doing a yeoman's job. You're listening to The Sandwich Generation on Spoke Street Media. I'm Chris Godfrey, and my guest today is Father Eric Cruz, a busy priest of the Archdiocese of New York, who also has strong connections with the Midwest. And although I don't travel to New York as much anymore, Father, I've been pleased to continue our friendship because you've been visiting South Bend with a little more frequency. What's your connection with the Midwest? Oh, the University of Notre Dame graduated there and earned another degree recently from the Mendoza Business School. And the rich, the beauty of the university in my time is an annual reunion, if you will, of at least at one football game of my classmates from Holy Cross Hall, as well as a mass together, having started a scholarship years ago in honor of our rector, Father Pat Sullivan. But the constant friendships, the growth of that, you've even seen the evolution of those friendships. And the opportunity, while at the same time, I I lived out there 15 years. I worked in the South Bend School Corporation in bilingual education. I was a reporter, news reporter for the South Bend Tribune. So being able to go back to visit colleagues, friends, 
yourself included, visiting your home, celebrating mass for everyone at any opportunity. It's just it's a essential part of my life. It's part of who I am. And I appreciate everyone so much. I've learned so much. Everyone has had such a crucial part in who I am and the path to the priesthood and with the priesthood. Your mother came to this country, did she not? She came from Puerto Rico shortly after the war, World War II, the first diaspora, the migration to New York. She was pregnant with my oldest sister when she arrived, passing through Ellis Island into Alphabet City, which is the lower Manhattan folks. A lot of the east-west streets are Avenue A, Avenue B, Avenue C. So Alphabet City is, is how it's known. Mm-hmm. She migrated north through East Harlem, El Barrio, Spanish Harlem in the vernacular, and eventually into the South Bronx, where I was raised with my siblings. And when did you first consider the priesthood? Shortly after my confirmation when I was 12. I began serving Mass as a first grader. Mass was still in Latin, although you could celebrate in the vernacular. Father Pompilio Alvarez, who I I still keep in touch with, he didn't speak English well, so he would offer the Mass in Latin. And everyone still knew the responses and the prayers. So I just had this love of serving. It really, really crested when I was in late grade school, junior high, confirmation at 12. Within six months, I was sitting in the rectory with some buddies of mine, and I felt this burning in my heart. And there is no other way to describe it. My heart was on fire. It wasn't anything I ate, anything like that. I knew it was God calling me to the priesthood. Efforts to enter the high school seminary failed only because we couldn't communicate or make contact. And, uh, you know, the good Lord had paved the way for me to discover, and that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame was on the horizon, just burning at 12, you know. The priesthood, I was so happy. I knew what I wanted to do. And that burning passion went away as you're growing up. It sort of fades. And I made the Neil fight mistake of, which was a natural error. If he wants me, he's going he's gonna to light me up again with that fire later on. Mm-hmm. Well, that fire never came. It just took a different form. People with whom I became close friends in school, out of school when I graduated working in South Bend. I taught at South Bend Riley High School. I should say I was a counseling staff there. So brother and sister teachers, we would talk about so many different things. Other faith leaders who were not, weren't Catholic, There were so many people who, to this day, I can't say that they knew each other unless they worked in the same school. At the end of a conversation, not every time, but most of the time, you ever thought of becoming a priest? (laughs) And these are from different faith communities, even the casual Catholics. That question kept coming up from these different voices. That wasn't a surefire sign as where I should be headed. There was going to be no other. There was direct. (laughs) contact through these angels that the Lord put in front of me. Your mother, a great sacrifice began by giving you up to Indiana and being an immigrant. Must have been a great sacrifice for your mom to give you up. How did she react to your becoming a priest or wanting to become a priest? Well, my mom had the great gift of pulling the rug out from under me. I learned a great gift of compromise from her. She didn't realize she was teaching me it, but she did. I rarely returned home after graduating college for holidays or anything, and every now and then, but not, not often. Work took over, schedules take over. When I finally returned and a year prior to entering the seminary, I made the decision, I'm okay, I'm gonna tell mom. 
first person I told was the parish priest, the pastor, Father Keith. He kept it under the under his hat until I told my mom and, and he would make a public introduction, if you will, to the community. I went home, sat down with mom. I said, Mama, I have something to tell you. Come, sit down. It puts her hand on the dinner table to sit. I have something to tell you. I'm like, no, but mom, this can't wait. Sit. <laughs> I have something to tell you. Okay. So I sat down. I kept quiet. My mom has a great devotee to Our Lady, to Mother Cabrini, patroness mm-hmm. of immigrants, as well as St. Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. And that was my home parish mm-hmm. in the Bronx, St. Augustine. I've been praying for you every day, every day. And I prayed that the next time you came and sat with me, you would be wearing the Roman collar. <laughs> I said, okay. So I started to water up and she finished, went to prepare some scrambled eggs and make me a hero. So, Mom, I have something to tell you. She goes, well, I'm sure it can wait. I said, okay. So she prepared lunch and you know what? It could wait because there was nothing I was going to tell her that was going to surprise her. It was all set up. The good Lord had this set up. And she beat me to the punch again. I made it official. I told her, well, your prayers have been answered. And she wasn't very emotional in her reaction. And it was almost like, thanks. I know. You know, that was her reaction. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know. And it, we just took it from there. It, it, so she was certainly uh, supportive always by prayer. That's why I know she prayed every day when I left home yeah. college and still doing so from on high. And your paths, uh, not that they ever didn't cross, but you, as you said, you had hardly got started and you're busy and you only got busier. But at, near the end of her life, you played a special role. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Mom suffered from, was afflicted by dementia, lasted six years in all. I was her primary care provider. And it was a bit of a challenge because his eminence had invited me to return to Notre Dame to further my own studies in preparation for my work in Catholic charities for the archdiocese. But at that time being invited, mom started just age concerns with me. Who's going to take care of her? Because you, you, you could see she just needed assistance, even in socializing, getting out. It just so happened in the archdiocese, the arch care, which is the medical arm for seniors of the archdiocese, have we just started what is known as a PACE program, all-inclusive care. And it, that would involve going to the nursing home for a day program of activities, of meals, and medical care, going home and having a home attendant X number of hours as required throughout the person's life. So there it was. There was the solution that allowed me to leave her in good hands and leave for studies. While I was away, she was diagnosed with dementia. So when I graduated and returned, everything was still stable. But in the end, I ended up being her primary care provider, sometimes spending nights at home with her if uh, the home attendant or nurse could not always on call for emergencies. And as the dementia progressed, more frequent were the, were the emergencies at home, the episodes, and addressing that myself spiritually and learning how to manage that, learning about the illness, the ailments, and learning about the impact, physical, mental, psychological, spiritual, that it has on a person. And, and in doing that, boy, did I learn a lot about mom. I learned much about God and their relationship, learn much more about faith and surrender because, you know, you can't control everything. And this was a challenge. It's, it's not a matter of control. It's a matter of being there. 
it's a matter of entering it became a matter of entering her life where she was at the time with the limitations and the challenges. So it was a very, very challenging time. Very challenging time. Yeah. How did you handle the, the the sense of loss you must have felt when she was slipping away, you know, perhaps not remembering things, maybe not even remembering, you know, yourself at times. I don't know how bad it got, but what advice might you give somebody who's experiencing that sense of loss? Uh, Loss is, is never a singular moment. When a loved one passes away, that's not loss. Loss begins with the illness and how we begin to address it within ourselves. And because it magnifies the relationship with the loved one. So it's, it's, a, it's a leg in the journey. And it's a, it's a discovery, not just about yourself. Or it's about the discovery of love and life. And because love costs. Love isn't easy. Love isn't free except for what God has given us on the cross. Love costs. That's the price of love. And it's supposed to hurt, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Because that is a, that's a witness and testimony to the depth and the dynamic of that love. Mm. That sense of loss will be filled with love and within faith with that is to come. I, I mentioned entering the person's world. One of the challenges I had to face were my siblings who live distantly. They're not nearby. So their encounters with mom were episodic. A phone call, monthly, weekly, every few months. Them trying to process, but she's repeating herself. But she's, but, you know, she's not hearing me. But I get so upset because they're remembering who mom was previous to the ailment. So entering their world, learning, you know, if she's getting upset, maybe I should stop, recognize what am I saying that's upsetting her. So the nature of the person doesn't change. Mom was always the head of the family. So if someone, one of the kids tells her something, well, I'm the mother, I'm supposed to be taking care of you. Well, okay, you're not going to go that, down that road again. Her nature is still there but it's changed because of this shroud of the dementia. So the dynamic is changed. So you enter her world where she is. We, we learn and grow. And if you have to write it down and note it, you won't commit the same error and live in the past. If she's remembering so-and-so from 50 years ago, that's where you converse with her. That's where you converse with your dad. That's where you engage them. If they return to it 10 minutes later, that's where you engage them 10 minutes later. Mm-hmm. And you learn and you really renew that relationship with them. I, only once did she forget my name. But the truth is, she'd call me Elvin, one of my older brothers. <laughs> and she would do it in front of the nurses or the kid or home attendant. And, oh, Father, I'm so sorry she didn't remember you. And I said, whoa, she always called me Elvin. So this isn't anything <laughs> of the dementia. She would always remember his name when she talked to me. So this isn't dementia. This is her talking. Okay, so let's relax on that. So you get these humorous moments that you only you know it, it is true. You know how to how how to deal with it with that encounter. Mm-hmm. But enter that world with your loved one. Be there with them. Live the moment with them, and do not hesitate to remind them how much they mean to you and the gratitude. Somewhere in the midst of the dementia or the ailment, they hear it. They respond to it. I remember caring pastorally for Alzheimer patients, well advanced. The best they could do is groan. 
but I, you know, I always prayed. I'd go in, learn something about that person and engage them about a granddaughter they loved or any memory that someone would share with you about them. And by the different tones of their groans or their responses, I will take my lead. Maybe one day they weren't too happy that I was there talking to them, but that's okay because they knew someone was there with them and always, always bring up the name of God. Even if it's just two words, thank God. Beautiful. You were ordained in St. Patrick's Cathedral, were you not? I was. I remember in my visits there, seeing what I recently saw recounted on a little video piece talking about the secrets of St. Patrick's. Anyways, as you look out the door of St. Patrick's, somebody placed this hulking statue of Atlas carrying the world on its shoulder, on his shoulder. And it appears to be a bit of a challenge and that we don't need God. We got this handled. Little known response to that was on the same sight line running across the street there at Fifth Avenue, into St. Patrick's, all the way up the aisle to the other side of the main altar was a little child Jesus holding the world in his hand as if it was a little toy, a ball. Mm-hmm. And the, the juxtaposition of the two, I thought, really spoke volumes as to what this caregiving must feel like. Sometimes it feels like the weight of the world on your shoulders, and it does if you're the only one carrying it. But if you let our Lord carry it with you, it can be something of a playful nature, something that it sounded like you entered into with your mom. And it was very beautiful. Uh, reminds me shades of St. Therese of Lisieux, who likened herself mm-hmm. as, to a, as a toy in our Lord's hand, and she just waited upon him. And uh, even though life on the exterior was hard, it was sweet because he was with her. And so, Father Eric, this reunion of ours over Zoom as you're parked alongside one of the busy highways in New York uh, has been wonderful. Look forward to another visit out this way uh, once things open up around here and uh, wish you Godspeed in your many endeavors. Thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you very much. And a blessed Easter. That's a reminder of who holds the world in whose hands and what those hands and that body did for each and every one of us. Amen. Well, I'm Chris Godfrey, and you've been listening to The Sandwich Generation, where we are better because of each other. And I look forward to being with you the next time. If you have a question about today's topic, feel free to email us at sandwichgeneration at redeemerradio.com. Comments by the host or any of his guests should not be construed as legal advice. If you would like to learn how to protect your stuff in three easy steps, call Godfrey Law Offices at 574-237-9000 or email them at info at godfreylawoffices.com. And... For a free will offering, you can receive a copy of the Friends of God Rosary Booklet. Go to RedeemerRadio.com forward slash sandwich and fill out the form for more information. You can download this or any other episode of our show by searching The Sandwich Generation wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to like and subscribe. You've been listening to The Sandwich Generation with Chris Godfrey. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.